So today, uh, like I mentioned, like Dave mentioned, we're going to talk about the bravery of Jesus. And I tend to think of myself as a relatively brave person. When we came to this topic, I thought, oh, okay, bravery, that's something uh, that, that, that I, I feel relatively brave. But, but, uh, but I think we all come to, to the limits of our own bravery when we face something terrifying, right? Like when something's terrifying, it's just like, man, I guess I realize now that, I, that I'm not that brave. For me, one of the things that, that helps remind me that I'm not really all that brave uh, are squirrels. Now you laugh because it's like, oh, squirrels are so cute and they're cuddly and all of that. That is all the guys. And uh, the thing about squirrels, you probably haven't thought about them as much as I have. I spend a lot of time thinking about them because I like to understand what motivates things that are trying to destroy me. And so I think about them from time to time. So here's the thing with squirrels. I mean, we've all had experiences with squirrels. Maybe you're with your your family and you're walking in the park or, or, um, you know, you're taking a nice stroll on a date with your spouse, your significant other. Maybe you're on campus and you're going from class to class and you see a squirrel maybe off in the distance doing a squirrel thing. And you're like, cool, that's fine, no problem. I'm doing my human thing, you're doing your squirrel thing. If we all play by the rules, nothing is gonna go wrong here. See, the problem is though with squirrels, they don't play by the rules, they're anarchists. And so, what happens? You're walking and the squirrel, what's it do? It jumps, it jumps out and it stands right in front of you. Now here's the moment where you lock eyes with its black eyes and you realize that's just imitating the blackness of its soul. And here's the thing. So right when, and you're in that moment, right? What happens next? You don't know. You never know. That's the thing about squirrels. You never know what comes next. And the thing is, I don't think the squirrel knows either. And it's really terrifying in that moment. And you may say, that's ridiculous, Gary. I'm not terrified of that. I've had that happen and everything's fine. But what do you do when the squirrel stops? you stop as well. No one, no one has ever just seen a squirrel come up and stop and go, squirrel, I'm a dominant. Here, you, you do your thing and I'll just walk past. No, everybody does the same thing the squirrel does and goes, and you wait for the squirrel to make the first move. It's proof that we're all terrified of squirrels in some way or another. We're not that brave. There are a lot of different pictures of, of who Jesus is. You get, the, you get imagery of, of Jesus as, as kind of like the long flowing hair and the blue eyes and, and like the, 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 the beauty pageant sash walking by the beach and the Sea of Galilee and all of that. That's one picture of Jesus. And then there's another picture of Jesus, like the stained glass version, that picture of Jesus where he's floating above humanity, never really touching people. He's just kind of always above and he's just kind of, kind of a deity that's looking down on us. None of those, neither of those are, are actually really good or at least fully true pictures of who Jesus is. So today we're gonna try to get the, a fuller picture, a truer picture of who Jesus is. And that's what we're really doing in this series, uh, The Day Death Lost Its Sing. We're lo- looking at, at the last day in the life of Jesus, and I think we, we, we're, we're trying to get to know him better. We're trying to see him clearly. And, and, the, and the thing is, we don't want to start with, in this series, we don't want to start with, uh, hey, be more like Jesus, because we want to be sure that Jesus is somebody we want to be like. And I think when we look at him, when we see him, he truly is that. It's interesting that in all four of the gospel accounts, uh, Jesus' life kind of slows down, almost grinds to a halt in this 
section in all four Gospels. In the Gospel of, of John, the one that we've been reading as a church, we just finished up and now we're on to uh, a chronological study in the life of Jesus. But in, in John, it's almost half of John. Same with Mark. It's almost half of the Gospel is, is these last moments of Jesus. There's a, a commentator who has this great quote, the amount of space in the gospels devoted to Christ's suffering and death is so disproportionate as to underscore the paramount value of this period of his life and ministry. Jesus' last day is crucial in us actually seeing him. And so we're, we're slowing down and, and, we're, and we're taking time and we're looking at, at Jesus. And we're gonna, we're, we're gonna continue to do that as we dig into his arrest today. That's, that's what we're gonna look at today. And what we're gonna see is a truer picture of Jesus. We're gonna see him in his bravery. Last week, we, we started uh, this series by looking at what Jesus prayed for on his way to the garden where he would be arrested. And he prayed for you. And he said, I pray that they're unified. And if they are, it will point people to me. That was his last thought as he, as he headed toward his own death. He was thinking about us, his great love for us. And so last week was on the way to the garden. This week, we're looking at what happened when he got to that garden. And so we're gonna jump into John chapter 18. If you have your Bible, you can open it. It's on your bulletin. You can also, uh, if you've got it on your phone, you can, you can call that up there as well. Uh, but starting in verse one of chapter 18, let me read. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials of the high priest and Pharisees. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him. And he went out and he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words that had been spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, Peter with a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So I wanna take just a couple of minutes and, and set us into this scene, kind of get into this scene with uh, Jesus and his followers and, and this detachment and, and Judas. Most commentators think that Jesus was arrested uh, somewhere between midnight and maybe 3 a.m., but Passover, which is when this is happening, corresponds with a full moon. So there was almost no light, but there was a little light. They brought torches with them to guide the way, but there was just a little light, mostly dark, just a little light. That might be significant. Now, the Mount of Olives where this uh, takes place is outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. It's where wealthy people would have private 
gardens. In, in the city of Jerusalem, it was congested, it was, it was dense, and so you couldn't have private gardens really inside the city. And there was another limitation as well. You couldn't have uh, fertilizers. In that day, fertilizers were manure. You couldn't have manure inside the city gates because it was considered unclean. And so if you wanted to have a garden, it would have to happen outside on, on the hillside, outside of the, the city. And Gethsemane is a word that means oil press. It's a place where oil would be extracted from the olives that grow there. And so uh, we know that a wealthy landowner owned the garden that, that Jesus was in. And this wealthy landowner, he or she, and, and, and it's actually pretty likely that it was, that it was a female who owned this garden. Uh, it says in the Gospels that, 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 that women funded most of Jesus' ministry. But he or she was, was obviously a friend of Jesus. It's important to point out um, that, that Judas knew the place. He, he knew this place. It, John tells us this in verse two, and it might seem like an insignificant detail, but it actually has a lot to do with the significance of this moment. If you turn back to the, the, the Passover meal, the last supper that they shared together, this began Jesus's last day. Uh, you, you, get a, you get a clue to this. So back in chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 21, it says this, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, by the way, uh, no ego problem with John. That's what he calls himself throughout. He doesn't self-identify as like the one, the one Jesus loved. There were the other disciples and then the one Jesus loved, so no ego problem there. Uh, so John was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to the disciple whom Jesus loved and said, ask him which one he means, which I love that. Peter, the guy, the rock, right? The one who, who's gonna be the foundation of the church is like, I don't wanna ask him, you ask him. And John's like, okay, he loves me. Uh, and so he asked him and uh, leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judah, Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. And so Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do it quickly. Jesus knew that Judas was gonna betray him. And Jesus knew where Judas was gonna go. He was gonna go grab this detachment and, and he, was gonna, he was gonna betray him. And if I were Jesus, here's the thing, in this moment, if I knew that Judas was gonna do this, I knew the extent that Judas was gonna go to betray me, I wouldn't go to a place where I hang out with my friends. I wouldn't go to a place where I'd spent a bunch of time before. I'd hide out. That's what I'd do. Because again, I'm not that brave. But Jesus does something very different. Jesus deliberately goes to the place that Judas knew, a place where they spent time together. He went to the place where Judas assumed he would be. In John 18, verse two, now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And Judas doesn't arrive with just a few soldiers. It says in verse three, Judas came to the garden. He, he was guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials as well. This word detachment is, uh, is a, a word to, to signify a group of military soldiers, uh, Roman soldiers uh, numbering 600 
Now, normally there wouldn't be that many soldiers in Jerusalem, but it was Passover, and Passover is when a lot of people would flood into Jerusalem, and so uh, as a Roman territory, the government, the Roman government said, hey, we got to make sure that we keep the peace, that there's no uprising with all these people descending on Jerusalem, so they would send more people. Usually, uh, they'd be stationed in Caesarea, but they would come down for Passover, these Roman soldiers. So maybe they were 600, maybe a few less, but this is a big number of soldiers, and these are people that are trained in, in military ways. These are hardened soldiers, 600 of them with officials and torches and, and weapons, all to arrest a poor carpenter from a podunk town of Nazareth. So that's the scene. There's moonlight, it's dark, which is very different than how we open the Gospel of John. John opened his Gospel by saying, light has burst into the darkness and the darkness can't overcome it, but now in the garden, it's mostly dark. There's just a little light left. And they're in this sloped garden and then there's hundreds of scary soldiers with swords and torches at three o'clock in the morning. That's the scene. And Jesus, knowing all that was gonna happen, John makes it clear, Jesus knew all, verse four, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, says, who is it that you want? It's so like Jesus to ask questions, even in this moment. Because questions invite relationship. We talk about that from time to time. That's, that's the first thing God does when people turn away from him, when Adam and Eve turn. He says, Adam and Eve, where are you? Because questions invite relationships. Questions say, I'm open to reconnecting with you. Let me ask you some questions. So the very first time people turned away from God and in this very moment when God himself was about to be sacrificed, questions because God is about inviting relationship and, and reconnecting. I imagine in, in this scene, this interaction between Jesus and, and these, these Roman soldiers, I, I can't help but think like knowing all that was gonna happen to him, he, he looks at these men, these scary men, hundreds, and he wants nothing but relationship with them. That's what he wants in this moment. And he asks this question, who, who is it that you want? See, they came for him. He's who they came for, but, but Jesus came for them. Who is it that you want? They replied, Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I'm he. I'm who you're looking for. You think you're here to kill me, but I am what you're looking for. I am what you have been running from your whole life. I am, am what you have tried to, to move away from. I am here to sacrifice for you. I am what you're looking for. You can't help but see the tenderness of Jesus, the love of Jesus right here being the motivator for his bravery. He stands up and he says, who is it that you want? And despite their evil intentions, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew their story. He knew everything about them. He, he knew the sin that they had committed. He knew the sin that had been committed against them because this is all of our story. This is the human story. And he knew that's why he was there in that moment. That's why he came to save them. Jesus, knowing all that was gonna happen to them, went out to them and asked, who is it that you want? And what's their response to Jesus, the, the, the response, they say, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he. His, his answer is that, and these huge, hardened 
band of brothers fall back. And it's strange. To me, I'm trying to, as I was thinking about this, this scripture, I'm trying to get my head around it. Like, why did they do that? How, why did they fall back? What's the, what's the power at work there? And then I think, you know what? Like, no matter how brave I think I am in any given moment, there are moments when I am actually scared of Jesus, that I fall back like, like those soldiers do. What is, what is Adam's response when, when in the garden when God says, where, where are you? Adam's response was, I, I heard you were in the garden, God, uh, and I got scared and I hid. We no longer can hide behind our armor or our strength or our achievements or our, our success because we are known by Jesus. Earlier in John, John 2, 25, it says, Jesus didn't need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. Jesus knows you. He, he knows what's in you. He knows what's been done. He knows what's been left undone. He knows what you're capable of. He knows it all. And he still wants relationship with you. He asks, who is it that you want? You see, it was Jesus' tenderness toward them and toward us, toward sinful humanity that led to his tremendous bravery. Again, that's Jesus being so godlike. In this year, uh, in the life of Jesus, we started with the I am statements of Jesus, these statements he made about himself. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the gate. I'm the shepherd. I'm the resurrection. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the vine. And each of these statements starts with the Greek, ego, I me, uh, I am. I am, right? Maybe a better translation, I will be who I am. I will be consistent with my character. It's the same that's used in the Old Testament in Exodus when God identifies himself to Moses. I am, I will be who I am. So when Jesus makes the I am statement, he's claiming to be God, and he uses the same phrase here in the garden when he's about to be arrested. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. I will be who I am. I am God. Jesus isn't just being God-like. He's making a statement that he is God. And God's about to be marched to his death by men who are terrified of him. And like we often don't, these soldiers, don't, they, don't even, they don't even have a full picture. They're terrified of Jesus. They draw back from Jesus, but they don't even have a full picture of what's going on in this moment. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's this, there's this incredible count of, the, of the, the vastness of the power of God. In, in 2 Kings 6, this is uh, Elisha, and he's with God's people, and God's people find themselves uh, in the worst type of situation, seemingly hopeless. And they're surrounded by an enemy uh, with no chance of escape. And the servant of Elisha comes to him and says, uh, oh, 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 oh my Lord, that's how he addresses Elisha. What are we supposed to do? And Elisha replies, uh, those who are with us are more than those who are with them, which is a strange thing to say. And then Elisha prays, open his eyes, Lord, that he may see. And then, and then we're told that God opened the servant's eyes and he sees chariots of fire all around Elisha and the people protecting them. Like Elisha, Jesus knew he was surrounded in that very moment by a host of heavenly beings, angels, that was greater than the detachment of Roman soldiers. He knew, 
if he asked, the, the, that legion of, of angels uh, would come to his age, aid. In, in Matthew's gospel account of Jesus' erect, it actually says so. Jesus says this, do you not think that I can call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus even talks about this in this moment. And this was also the temptation of Satan when Jesus, after he's baptized, before he begins his public ministry, uh, Satan actually quotes Psalm 91. And that Psalm says, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. So here in his last day, in this moment where we needed his bravery, he stands up to that ultimate temptation. And instead of calling out for his own rescue, he's determined to rescue us. He had the power to rescue himself, but he chose us. And Jesus says again, who is it that you want? And then he says, I told you, I am he. If you're looking for me, let these men go. People on death row often get a, a last request, maybe a last meal, or if they wanna say some final words, uh, they, they get that opportunity. And so we can liken that to this moment. Jesus knew he was about to die. This was his last request. What has Jesus asked for? For us. He asked for us to be set free. He says, let them go. Jesus wants you free. And I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe you don't feel like that's possible. Maybe, maybe you're struggling with something and you've struggled so long, you're like, I don't think that is even possible for me to be free. Or maybe the, on the other side of it, maybe you're like, I don't even deserve to be free. Maybe that's what you feel like. But Jesus didn't get up and face down a detachment of Roman soldiers and head toward his own death for you to stay trapped. Jesus' final request was for you. And what propelled Jesus toward this final hour with tremendous bravery was his eye was set on you. Do you believe that Jesus wants you to be free and alive? Because these last moments he says he does. And as Jesus was being arrested, we're told that, that Peter draws a sword. It was probably more like a, like a dagger, and he cuts off the right ear of uh, the servant of the high priest. His name was Malchus. And uh, this, this incident is actually recorded in all four uh, of the Gospels, but only here are we told that it's Peter. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told uh, that Jesus actually heals uh, the ear of, of Malchus. But, but here, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? It's kind of a weird thing to say. Sometimes Jesus says things that out of context seem so weird. Put your sword away. Am I not supposed to drink this cup? Like what cup? What is he, what is he talking about? John doesn't tell us uh, in his gospel of the agony that Jesus went through before his arrest, but the other gospel writers do. They, they talk about and, and show us a picture of Jesus praying. He prayed on the way to the garden, but he prayed in the garden, and he had so much agony about this that his sweat turned to blood. He was so anxious about this, and he says, God, I don't want this. I don't want this cup of suffering, but yet not my will, yours. The language of the cup wasn't invented by Jesus. It's actually really meaningful in, in the Old Testament. Throughout uh, the Psalms and Isaiah in particular, there are other places as well, but, but throughout those two places in particular, there's, there's talk of the cup of divine blessing, but also the cup of wrath and judgment. 
These things are talked about often as two different cups that we drink as humans. Jesus' perfect life meant he could drink the cup of God's divine blessing. He was perfectly holy. And we, because of our sin, deserve judgment and death. We can only drink from that cup of wrath and judgment. In Gethsemane, Jesus switches cups with us. He took the cup of all the sin and pain and death and heartache so that we could receive the cup of blessing. Why? Why did he do that? It was Jesus' love toward us that motivated him because he knew our hopelessness. He knew we couldn't do it on our own. He knew there were times when we just can't get up. And so he got up for every single time we can't. Jesus switched cups with us in the garden. See, in that garden, it looked like hopelessness and heartache and despair, it looked like it was winning. That's why Peter draws the sword. He's like, this thing's over, this thing's falling apart, I don't know what else to do, I'm just gonna, in in despair, I'm gonna reach out. And we all find ourselves in moments where hopelessness and heartache and despair seem to be winning. The the statistics in our country uh, around depression and even suicide are are staggering. But But it's more than just statistics. We're, we're a community that's, that knows what it, fe- what it feels like to go through pain and loss and heartache, depression and, and, and suicide. As hard as it is to bring up, it's a reality that we have experienced. And this will be an aside, but maybe the most important aside for someone in, in the room. If you're struggling, if you're having thoughts, t- tell somebody. Tell me, uh, tell the person sitting next to you, uh, have someone to call when it seems overwhelming, when it seems like hopelessness is winning. Don't go it alone. Suicide is never the only option ever. Everybody struggles, but no one should or has to struggle alone. So they're all, we all have these moments where hopelessness seems to be winning and, and maybe it's, it's agonizing over a, a messy marriage or messy circumstances or a messy relationship with parents or, or with your kids or with your coworkers or with a friend. Maybe it's a mess of your own doing. Maybe the mess bumped into you as you were just walking down the street. And if you're agonizing over how to take your next step, your next right step following Jesus uh, because you've messed up and, and this is a messed up, broken world. Jesus knows how you feel. Jesus looked at the mess that we created and knew that it was bravery that was needed on his part. And so he used his bravery to not move away from, not to flee from, but to move into the suffering and the mess. And he got up every single time we can't. Sometimes we look at the mess uh, that we find ourselves in and we just, we just give up. We're like, I, I don't, we lose hope. I don't think things will ever get better. I think this is just how things are. We don't see a way out. Listen, you don't have to find a way out. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We start with finding him. That's where this starts. 
There's no mess greater than the Son of God and no comfort greater than his love. That's where we start. We don't start with trying to find a strategy. We start with trying to find him. The antidote to hopelessness is not our ability to fix the mess or our ability to escape from it. The antidote is him. Jesus was brave so that when we aren't, we're okay. He was brave for us. And it means no matter how bad it is, no matter how much we've messed up, no matter how dark it gets, the light never goes away completely. You aren't alone. You have a savior who knows your agony, but in your hopelessness, he is hope. Jesus tells Peter, put down the sword of despair. Put it down. And then he resolves to drink the cup of wrath and judgment that we deserve, which means we get to drink the cup of divine blessing even though we didn't earn it. No more pain, no more violence, no more division, just Jesus. And Jesus switching the cup with us didn't start on the cross. It started the moment he got up off his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, I am he, take me, let them go. And he stood up. That's the gospel. Jesus switched cups with us. And he walked bravely and walks bravely into every single mess everyone has or ever will create. And he didn't walk away. He walked into it. And he said, take me. Let them go. So that they can be free and they can be alive. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your bravery. Thank you that you get up for every single time we can't. Thank you that you took on what we deserve so that we could have what we could never ever earn, life and freedom and your love. Thank you for the truth of the good news of who you are, who you came to be, and the bravery you displayed out of your great love for us. I pray that that truth would ring in our minds and in our hearts for every single moment, hopelessness and despair and heartache seem to be winning because we know they don't. They don't win. You do. I pray that we would see it and that we would lean into you as the way, the truth, and the life, even when we don't necessarily know the way out, that we would hold on tight to you and we would hold on tight to each other as we pursue the lives that you have called us to, but we begin with your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.